love how Andy Stanley describes vision. He defines it this way. He says, vision is a clear mental picture of what could be fueled by the conviction that it should be. A great vision, you see, not only inspires us to look for, toward the future, but it, but it gives us this deep, deep sense of conviction. Often when we think about vision, we think about this. And, you know, there's something to be said about uh, the vision of, of building a church. Um, a number of years ago, when we dreamed of leaving the old location and moving to this location, I've heard stories. I wasn't here when this happened, but I, I heard stories. Not everybody at first thought this was an especially good idea. And yet now we look at how this facility is used. It's used seven days a week. It's used by our community. It's used as a base for ministry and the exciting thing, this facility is beautiful and nice as it is. It is debt-free. And in the coming weeks, we're going to be hearing some things about how we want to freshen up this facility. But today, what I want to talk specifically about as we think about vision is I want to think about people. And I want to think about the people who are not yet sitting in this chair. I want us to think about some students who aren't here quite yet. And yet, when they hear about a church with a compelling vision, a church that's not just concerned about itself, but a church that's concerned about the world, they'll be drawn to that. I want us to talk about young couples. I want us to talk about middle-aged couples. I, I want us to talk about single people who find the community and the life here so compelling they they want to come and be a part of what we're doing. I want us to talk about the senior adults who move into our community or maybe who already live here, and yet they're not currently going anywhere to church, and yet they find there's something missing in their heart. There's, they're finding something that's just not there, and so they're drawn to the things that we're doing. When I do new member orientation with people, I often talk about the strengths of College Hills, and one of the strengths of this church is that we are an older established church. When I tell people that we've been around for around 180 years, it really blows people's minds. And over those last 180 years, we've developed a great reputation in this community. And I think we've developed a great reputation in this community in part because we're so concerned about being a blessing to this community. We are a serving church. When we hear about a certain need, uh, we make sure we marshal the resources together to meet that need. And so years ago when we realized that some, some people, there wasn't a, really, there weren't enough uh, houses for men in transition, we developed the Hearn House. And now 12 to 15 men reside there as they're getting back on their feet. When we perceived that there was a need for our seniors, we developed Hearthside Assisted Living. We found out about a growing homeless population, so we sprang into action and we developed Compassionate Hands Homeless Ministry. And now something like 30 or 40 churches in the area are involved in that ministry as we open our building one day a week and as other churches open their building one night a week to welcome in our, our homeless neighbors. And I could go on and on. You see, one of the strengths of our congregation, we are an older, established church. But on the other hand, one of our challenges is that we are an older, established church. 
And when I say older, I don't mean older in terms of demographic makeup. We have a a healthy spread of ages. This year, I'm told, we had 19 babies. Isn't that amazing? You see, at College Hills, we believe firmly in following the biblical command of being fruitful and multiplying. And we believe that. And every Sunday when I, when I get up here to preach, I, I tell you all the time, I love that sweet sound of hearing little babies crying. I know moms and dads are all nervous about that, but I, I love that sound because it says something about the future of our congregation. Because we are an older, established congregation, we have certain patterns of ministry. And quite frankly, it's more challenging for us to change than for other younger churches it is to change. And one of the things I know is that if we're going to continue growing and thriving, churches must always change. If you're going to grow, it's going to require a little bit of change. This past year, I've decided that I'm going to get healthier, that I need to grow healthy. And I realize that it's going to require me to do some things differently. I'm going to have to do some changing. One of the things I'm changing is my diet. I mean, I've been one of these persons all along that whatever I saw, I just, I just ate, and yet my cholesterol's a little high, and so the doctor says, you need to think about what you're eating, so suddenly I'm in this stage of life where I'm thinking about what I'm eating. And I, I've even, I know this sounds amazing, but I, I'm even thinking about going to the gym. Now, I haven't gone yet, but I'm, I'm thinking about it. And I'm thinking that I'm going to exercise some muscles that I've probably never even exercised before. And it's going to probably cause me some some challenge as I think about doing that. I've got to do some things differently if I'm going to continue growing and thriving. And so must churches. For us to continue growing and, and thriving as a church, it always requires thoughtful, biblical, healthy change. Sometimes that's hard. But think about how we've grown and changed over the years. This was a congregation that embraced grace long before many churches in our tribe really understood that. And so if you went through the trauma of a divorce in this community, you realized you could find health and healing at College Hills. You weren't going to be judged. You were going to be loved and embraced. We were one of the first churches to add a female to our ministry staff. Carol Locke for years served as our children's minister, and now Hope Sampson is following in her steps, doing a fantastic job. Or how about this? College Hills for a number of years has had a heart for racial reconciliation. We desire to be a church that reflects the beautiful diversity of our community. We truly believe the song that we teach our children, which goes red, yellow, black, brown, and white. They're precious. Every one of them are precious in his sight. And so we can never stop dreaming. And when we follow a dream, it always requires a measure of adjustment and change. A few moments ago, George read from Psalm 78, This is a psalm of Asaph. Asaph is not all that familiar to us. Asaph wrote 12 of the psalms in the Psalter. But what I especially like about Psalm 78 is it seems that that Asaph has a concern for the next generation. We sense a little bit of urgency in this psalm uh, from verse 1 where Asaph says, My people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. And then he gives them a bit of, of history. Why, we wonder. 
Because he wants, wants this faith to be passed down. He wants this faith to be communicated. And so he says, we will not hide uh, them from their descendants. Uh, we will tell the next generation, he says, of the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord about his power and the wonders he has done. If you're in the habit of underlining your Bibles, I would love for you to underline that last, that last phrase. Underline that phrase where it talks about describing the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord and his power and the wonders he has done. As I read this this week, I, I got to reflecting on my own life, my own parenting, and I, I wondered, when was the last time I had a conversation with my children about the Lord and about his power and the things that he has done in the world and even more personally in my life? You see, Asaph wants the next generation to know of the Lord's power and all of these wonders. And so he goes on to tell them that we're to teach these things, notice he says, so the next generation will know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn will tell their children. He imagines parents handing down, leaders handing down this faith to the next generation. And even that next generation, faith will be so alive and so real in them, they in fact will hand it down to the next generation. And so today, I want us to visualize how absolutely important it is for us to pass our faith down to the next generation, for us to be the kind of church that's relevant for a, a younger generation. So we've invited uh, 10 uh, students from our student ministry. If y'all would come right now, uh, 10 students from our student ministry, and if y'all would just, just stand right here, right in front, just come, come quickly uh, and just stand right down front, uh, just sort of in a, in a straight line, just maybe from here all the way to here y'all come on up yeah just come on it walk on up the steps let's just be all the way up to the top right here and just look out at this great loving encouraging caring audience isn't this a great group of people in this great yeah hey could we could we stretch around this way a little bit more could we stretch around this yeah just a little bit more okay fantastic now um i heard a sermon not long ago by a guy named david skidmore david skidmore is the uh, youth and family minister over at North Boulevard Church in Murfreesboro, and he was talking and giving statistics uh, that every youth minister worth his salt knows uh, how we're losing a certain percentage of our high school students once they leave high school. And, and the statistics they give really are quite astounding. Uh, some of the uh, statistics say we're losing, after our students graduate high school, we're losing 70 to 80 percent of them. Isn't that amazing? 70 to 80% of them. Now, there's a time when we felt like that these students would come back to us, but they've done a study with what they call the nuns, the nuns in America. Now, the nuns are not, you know, religious people. They're not with the Catholic Church. Not that. These, these are folks that identify themselves as having no connection to any church. And so what they're seeing is where in the past a lot of these students would get married, they would start having kids, and they would start coming back to the church. What we're finding out is a lot of them aren't coming back to church. Seven out of ten. So seven of you, 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 can, you can go ahead and be seated. I've asked three of you to stay, so those of you that know who I've asked you to stay, you know who those are. And I didn't tell them to stand like this, but I love the symmetry of this. This is, this is, <laughs> this is great. It just worked out that way. And so the question I want to ask us, are we okay with this? Are we okay with losing 7 out of 10 of our students? Some statistics say 8 out of 10. 
I don't think we are. We want to keep all of them, don't we? Okay, thanks, guys. You can be seated now, too. You can be seated. And so back in 2011, our church said, we're not okay with losing 7 out of 10. So we decided as a church, we were going to do some different kinds of things to reach the next generation. We decided we were going to be more intentional than we ever have been. We developed this thing we call the 2020 vision. And and a part of that 2020 vision was that we would put a focus, put an emphasis on the next generation. And we would do that in part by staffing toward it. And we've done that. But not only do we as a church need to be more intentional about keeping and reaching the next generation, but as moms and dads, We've got to be more intentional. A part of our vision says we wanted to teach and to train moms and dads to have conversations with their children at home. Because our kids need to see that we really believe this stuff. We really believe what we're singing. We really believe what we're saying. That our faith is central to our lives as well. David Kinneman has written a lot of books on the next generation. And Kinneman tells a story from his own life. He, he talked about how his family was on vacation, and they ran in, into this, this young lady who seemed to be struggling, seemed to be going through some difficulties. And Kinneman said, I'm, I've never been one of these people that would just come up to another person and, and pray for them or pray with them. He said, that makes me uncomfortable. But he said, somehow I felt led, I felt compelled by God to reach out to this woman and ask, can we pray for you? And he said, I, I did. And our family surrounded them, prayed for this woman, and she left. And he said, I'll never forget what my son said to me after that encounter with the woman. He said, my son said, Dad, we really believe this stuff, don't we? And that's the question I want to ask. Do we really believe this stuff? See, if we're going to keep more of our kids, one of the things our kids must see is that we as moms and dads really believe this stuff. We as a church really believe this stuff. I think this is a significant moment in the life of our movement, but it's also a significant moment in the life of our church. Recently, someone gave me his old collection of gospel advocates. I don't know why he did this. I never had a conversation with this person about wanting his old gospel advocates, but he pulled up at my house, he opened his trunk, and in the back of his trunk were these binders filled with all of these gospel advocate magazines. Now I realize some of you don't know what the gospel advocate magazine is, probably those of you under 40. The gospel advocate magazine was this flagship magazine that began in the middle 1800s that's still being published today, and it was about you know all the stuff going on in churches of Christ. And so I said, well, thank you for this gift. I found, my, I found some space for these bound version of Gospel Advocates. And I've just kind of been, I'm like sort of a history buff, and I've just sort of been reading through them. And it was kind of interesting to see what was going on in the life of the church in the 30s. Kind of fascinating to see what was going on in the 40s during World War II. But then I came to the 50s. And one of the things that, that older preachers would do at that time is that they would write into the gospel advocate and they would describe what they were seeing and experiencing in the churches. And there's one key leader, a man by the name of Norval Young. At the time, in the mid to late 50s, Norval Young was preaching for the largest church of Christ in our nation. It was the Broadway Church in Lubbock, Texas. They had 3,500 on Sunday mornings. Largest church in our fellowship at that time. And it was fascinating to see what he wrote. 
he said, and he was traveling all over the country, preaching in churches all over America, and he said, in, in my travels, he said, most every church that I come in contact with or where I preach, he said, they're adding onto their building to accommodate the crowds. He said, most every church I know of is having record numbers of baptisms. Fast forward 20 years. In the early 70s, I was growing up in a small little town in the southern part of Illinois. There was probably 15 or 20 people that, was going, that were going to various churches of Christ um, in other towns. And, and someone heard about this group that had gathered, you know, at, in our little community. And somebody had the, the desire to plant a church in our town. There was not a church of Christ in our town. So they had a meeting, and a vision was born, and we decided to plant the church. And we found out that there was a, a Baptist church that was moving on the outskirts of town, and they were building a brand new building, and so they were selling their old building. So we, we cobbled together the resources. We didn't have any money. We cobbled together the resources, and we were able to buy that, that building. You should see a picture of that building right there on, on your screen. And man, we were excited. And in the 70s, we began a bus ministry, and we're bringing in 20 or 30 kids. We're canvassing on Saturdays. We began having Bible studies. At some point, uh, they asked some of the younger men to start preaching, and so I had an opportunity, I've told you about that before, to preach. I was in a Bible class, and our, and our teacher was asking us to do things like, like memorize Scripture, and so I was memorizing Scripture. That had an incredible impact on my life. I'll tell you, there's no doubt, I, I would not be standing here today had it not been for my experience with that church of my youth. Now I want you to think about 2017, two years ago. 2017, that church that had done so much good. Two or three people I know are preaching in full-time ministries as a result of that church. That church in 2017 closed its doors. That church sold the building they distributed the resources to some other ministry they heard about. That church was no longer viable, and it doesn't exist today. And that's not a story that's uncommon. That's happening all across our nation. I'm not talking about other churches. I'm talking about churches of Christ right now. Stan Granberg reports in the Christian Chronicle that though we were saying one church of Christ per week was closing its doors. He said that's the time frame's getting smaller. It's now every six days in the United States of America, a church of Christ will close its doors. I don't know all the reasons for that, but here's what I do know. Our vision here must involve thinking very strategically and very proactively about how we're going to reach the next generation. So here's what I want to say today. If we're going to reach the next generation, we must first have a vision that's bigger than us. Our vision must be outward. Our vision must be beyond our four walls. I love it. I love it when we, get, when we come to this gathering and we're inspired by hearing about someone who's moving beyond us to do something uh, outside these four walls. Last Sunday morning, I loved hearing Chris and Emily Gannon I love them talking about how we as a church are involved in planting churches in Baja, Mexico. I love that. One of our families this week is going to uh, Uganda and Kenya. I would like the Cherry family. Would you all come up here uh, real quick? 
The Cherry family this week is going to be going to Uganda, I believe, and Kenya. And I love it when I hear about our own people. When, when the vision gets in their heart and they realize that we need to take this message to, to beyond our four walls. And so, Jessica, I would like for you to tell us a little bit about what you're going to be doing on this trip. So, a lot of the women and young girls over there, they don't have the proper things to take care of themselves when they're on their menstrual cycles. So they end up falling behind in school or work and end up missing 84 days out of the year, which is our ministry. And so they end up getting behind and not being able to leave their homes. So we are going to the schools and providing reusable hygiene kits for these women. And we'll also be teaching self-defense so they can learn skills to defend themselves because there's a big risk of being attacked. So we're just going to go and have a workshop at different schools and give out these kits and just um, fellowship with them and give self-defense courses to them. Oh, fantastic. Jeff, would you like to say a word or two about what you guys are going to be? Sure. So while the women are working with the girls in the communities, these communities have been spotted because they have wells that are in disrepair. And so there may be 500 people living in a community and they don't have water currently because their well isn't functioning. So while the women are teaching and working with the other women, the men will be repairing wells. Jeff and I will be in some other sites checking on wells, uh, different from this group. But the main source of, of the ministry is the women's program in conjunction with uh, the repairing of these wells. So when a well goes down, the young women are generally the ones in the community that actually go and bring the water back to the home for the family, maybe uh, elementary age girls, junior high age girls, high school girls. And when those wells go down, it forces those girls to have to travel to the next community. So they may take a five-gallon jerry can and walk uh, a half a mile to two miles one way, fill up that five-gallon jerry can, and then have to bring it back every day in order to have water. What we've learned through the process is, is that many times those girls uh, will be uh, molested, attacked, raped uh, on their way to that or from that community. And it also forces them, instead of going into the next community to get water, where that well is already overworked, to have to go to stagnant, diseased water sources to retrieve their water, and, and therefore the health in the community is lowered. So we have an opportunity at the conclusion of the women's ministry to dedicate that well back to this community and talk about the living water of Jesus while we're there. Amen. Can we show our appreciation to them? Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm going to ask uh, our elder at the very end of our service to pray, especially for the cherries uh, as they go this week, I think. I think you're going later on in the week um, to be a part of that. So we're going to ask for our elders at the very end. Uh, to remember them in prayer. And I wanted you to hear that story because he, here's what it says. Our vision, it begins here, but it moves beyond these walls. It's very important for us to understand that. But here's something else about our vision. If we're going to continue to reach the next generation, our vision must involve equipping and training families. There's a deep connection between the family and the church. The health of the family will impact the health of the church, and the health of the church will, in fact, impact the health of the family. And so we have staffed toward uh, reaching families through our Faith at Home initiative. We have a 
family ministry team that consists of Johnny Markham, our family minister, and Alex Searcy, our student minister, and Hope Sampson, our children's minister. And together they form this cohesive team to bless and to help us to reach and equip and train our our families. Something else, if we're going to reach the next generation, we must staff strategically for growth. You see, each of our five big vision areas, and if you don't know what our five big vision areas are, they're on the wall in the foyer. As you leave today and look on that wall in the foyer, you'll find our five big vision areas. We've already, as a church, experienced a measure of growth as we've learned to staff wisely. Wilson McCoy has helped us develop a growing and thriving young adult ministry. We could not have reached the young adults we're currently reaching without his leadership. We believe the addition of a worship minister will also help us to continue to reach the next generation. Church growth specialists tell us that a church should have one full-time minister for every 150 attenders. We have five full-time ministers. And so we're currently staffed to be a church of 750 in attendance. Now let that sink in for a moment. We're not even adequately staffed for where we are, much less where we wish to be. If our vision is to reach the next generation, we must staff for growth. When I talk with friends of mine who preach for churches much smaller than this church, and and they find out that that our, our worship ministry is not staffed, they're amazed at that. Our worship minister, like other worship, uh, like other ministers, will help train and equip us. He will be a leader of leaders. You see, we don't need fewer people involved in worship. We need more people involved in worship. We need someone who's thinking full-time about raising up the next generation of worship leaders, training and staffing our praise team, and on and on it goes. One more thing. If we're going to reach the next generation, we must always keep the main thing the main thing. We've done a good job of defining the mission. When someone asks, well, what is our mission? It's to make and nurture disciples of Jesus. And that is a restatement of Matthew 28, 18 through 20, where Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Some of you in business are familiar with the name Peter Drucker. The late Peter Drucker was this business guru, and when he began to work with companies, work with, with industry, in industry, he would always ask an organization two questions. He would say, what business are you in? And then they would define that business, and they would follow that up with the question, so how's business? If we were to ask, what business are we in? Jesus is not ambiguous about it. Jesus doesn't give us ten things to do or five things to do or even three things to do. Jesus says there's one thing that my church should be about. It's Matthew 28, 18 through 20. As you're going, make disciples. Our business is making disciples. And so the question I ask is, how's business? We cannot mass-produce disciples. Disciples must be handcrafted. So here's the question I want to end with today as we conclude the message. Who's going to sit in this chair in the future? And for some of you, this is a very personal question. For some of you, you think, I want my grandson to sit in this chair. He's not going to church anywhere. For others of you, you think, I want my granddaughter to sit in this chair. 
For some others of you, you think, no, it's my son or it's my daughter. For others of you, it's a friend. It's a co-worker. Maybe it's your neighbor. You know they're far from God. They don't go to church anywhere. And here's, here's my prayer, is that we will be a church that has such a compelling vision. We will have a church that's laser-focused on the one thing that Jesus has called us to do. And that because we know that and are excited about that, we'll give toward that. We'll be involved in that. We will invite friends and neighbors. We will marshal resources. We will pray about that. We will do everything we, we can do because we know Jesus has called us, has called us to the one thing, to go, to make disciples of all nations.